The June 7 primary in Los Angeles is going to be interesting. You've got billionaire developer Rick Caruso facing off against Congressional Representative Karen Bass for mayor with other candidates far, far behind. Crime and homelessness has voters considering a recall of the progressive district attorney. Meanwhile, the sheriff of L.A. County, Alex Villanueva, he's expected to easily win his election. So he's spending his free time accusing L.A. Times reporters of criminal actions for reporting on his controversial department. Uh, okay. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. Today, we've got a live panel that I moderated at the LA Times Festival of Books a couple of weeks ago that's as relevant as ever. My colleagues Aline Chekmedi and Julia Wick and Erica D. Smith joined me to talk about LA's local races that are getting national attention. Enjoy. Okay, so we are going to be talking about three especially consequential races that are getting national attention that are happening here in Los Angeles. The mayor's race, which there's going to be a primary in June. The sheriff's race, L.A. County sheriff's race, which is going to happen also a primary in June. And then something, it's not an official race, but it's definitely involving politics, but a second recall effort against L.A. District Attorney George Gascon. So the question I'll ask for all of you to start why are all these races getting national attention? What, like, what, what are the national implications that people are so interested in? So starting with Julia with the mayor's race. Yeah, that's a great question. This is the first open mayoral primary in Los Angeles in nearly a decade. Garcetti was initially elected to office in 2013. So LA is the second biggest city in the country. I think there's a lot of kind of interest in what LA's politics are going to look like. And particularly following the New York mayor election, where the city swung somewhat to the center, I think people are really looking to L.A. to see if, you know, some people are kind of saying this is actually a trend in larger American cities of left-wing cities or uh, overwhelmingly Democratic cities shifting to the center. And so it'll be interesting to see how the L.A. mayoral race plays out in that context. Aline, why is the sheriff's race getting so much attention? Why are people so interested in this guy? Well, Sheriff Villanueva is certainly a very interesting figure, but I would say the sheriff's race is not actually getting that much national attention. You know, historically, the sheriff's race doesn't generate a lot of attention. People don't often really differentiate between, you know, the LAPD and the LASD, the sheriff's department, or realize that the sheriff is actually an elected position. The LAPD obviously patrols the the city of L.A. and then the sheriff's department patrols the unincorporated areas of the um, county and runs the jails and also patrols cities that don't have their own police departments. But the issues that are sort of at the forefront of the campaign, I think, are very much intersecting with the mayoral race and the rise in violent crime and homicides and the exploding homelessness crisis that's happening. So that's one of the interesting things with all of the races that we're going to talk. There's so many intersections on each other that in some ways you can't even extricate each and any of them. And at the end, it all kind of funnels into what's going on with George Gascon. Yeah, the district attorney's race, it's like it is getting national attention, I think, uh, much like the mayor's race. Um, you know, George Gascon is facing a recall. They're still collecting signatures now. We'll know in a few weeks whether or not he's actually going to face a recall election. But, you know, it's part of that larger trend about whether 
Um, cities, more Democratic-leaning cities, are going to go from what have been typically liberal policies, you know, progressive criminal justice reform, and looking at, you know, more of the roots of crime to more of this kind of tough-on-crime policies where we're returning to, you know, locking more people up, doing more kind of heavy policing in communities in response to an uptick in homicides, which we've seen not just in L.A., but nationwide, in cities across the nation, and also some other crimes, which we can talk about a little bit later. But, you know, I think it really is just one of those things that people see it as a bellwether race, whether or not he's recalled much like uh, a similar race against the district attorney in San Francisco. So Jessa Boudin. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it, you know, this race does have some consequence as far as how people are going to perceive the, the life of kind of these more criminal justice reforms policies that have been backed by Democrats. How consequential of an election year is 2022 in Los Angeles? Does it compare to other years like, say, 93 when Richard Reardon was elected or even going back to 69 when Tom Bradley ran against Sam Yorty? I mean, it's hard to say that anything is up to 69 or 73 with Tom Bradley and Sam Yorty. But I think this is a very consequential election year in Los Angeles, both because of what I mentioned before about the first open mayoral primary and nearly a decade, but also the majority of L.A. city council seats are up for election this year. There's eight city council races, five incumbents are up for re-election, and three of those incumbents are in potentially competitive races, which is a really big deal in L.A. city council. It's really, really rare for an incumbent to be unseated in L.A. city council, and it's rare for them to even have a competitive race. Aline and Erica, you know, in the DA's, you know, the possible DA recon and then the sheriff's race, you also have this, what I see, like the rise of at least the so-called liberals in Los Angeles getting angry and maybe voting for Villanueva, maybe voting for Gascon. And like where people are noticing, like, is L.A., which is supposed to be this progressive beacon, is L.A. actually turning conservative? Are they going to turn conservative in this election? What do you think? I think Villanueva certainly hopes so with his platform in terms of you know, how historic this race is. I think that we're coming off a very historic race from 2018 when he was first elected on a groundswell of support from progressive voters. Um, he really courted Democratic voters. And it was a time in L.A. where people were very fed up with the rhetoric coming from the Trump administration. And so Villanueva kind of positioned himself as like a anti-Trump, you know, person that was going to kick ICE out of the jails and not cooperate with immigration authorities. But now he's sort of very much shifted to the right um, with all of the issues happening locally, sort of trying to position himself as the law and order candidate. And, you know, he's been increasing how many hidden weapon permits that he's giving out to people. He's that's like really exploded. And so he's sort of courting the other side for this election. Do you buy that he's actually conservative in, in the sense because he did run to try to get progressives and a lot of progressives voted for him in 2018. But now almost all those progressives have said, like, nah, you tricked us, man. Right. So he made a series of decisions very quickly when he took office in 2018 that really upset a lot of those voters. The first and kind of biggest one was when he reinstated a deputy that had been fired for domestic violence and um, stalking allegations. And then during the internal investigation, he was accused of lying about those things. And so that was like one of his first moves in office. And so people were really shocked by that. And then, you know, there's been a series of scandals since then that have turned off the progressive voters. 
Erica, you mentioned with uh, what Gascon is facing as a bellwether, just of politics in general and what's going on in Southern California, but especially Los Angeles. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. I, I was laughing a little bit at your comment about whether LA is going to be conservative, maybe, maybe because I lived in Indiana for 10 years. So I think the conversation of conservative, <laughs> air quotes, is <laughs> very different. But I mean, I do think that, you know, even if he is recalled, I don't think he's going to be replaced with somebody who's going to be so far to the right that, you know, we're going to go back to even potentially pre-92, you know, the kind of policies that we had, in part because we just don't have the crime rate that we did. I mean, you know, there's a lot of political rhetoric about homicide rates and crime rates, but, you know, we're nowhere near the peak in the 90s, and that's just a fact. And so, and I also think that the public in LA and in, in most of liberal California has learned some lessons from the 90s and from the 60s and that, you know, while we may go back to taking a harder look at some of the criminal justice reforms that have been put into place, whether that's Prop 47, whatever, I don't think that the majority of people are like, yes, we need to lock up people the way that we did in the 90s. And I don't see this big return. I think what you're going to see is, and I think this is why this is this bellwether, is, is that whether this kind of political rhetoric actually works to get people elected. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that what changes after they get elected is going to be drastic, but it gets them in office. And so I think that's that kind of gradual kind of shift and clawing away at some of those reforms that have been traditionally supported by progressives. More from our live panel at the LA Times Festival of Books after the break. Let's talk about the mayor's race, Julia. You know, that I think of the three is probably the most rambunctious, to put it lightly. Who are the candidates? Who are the favorites? What are the scandals? Excellent. Or the cheese, as we say in, in <laughs> Spanish. So according to the most recent L.A. Times poll that came out a couple of weeks ago, Rick Caruso, who is a billionaire real estate developer, you might know him from The Grove or The Americana, or here, um, USC, too. That, too, yes. I forgot where we were. And Karen Bass are in somewhat of a dead heat for first place. Caruso in that poll was at 24%. Bass was at 23%. And 40% of likely voters remain undecided. So there's still a lot of room for things to move. But they have really kind of gotten to the front of the pack. City Councilman Kevin DeLeon, who was at 8% in the prior poll, had gone down to 6% in this poll. So he's really kind of a far third at the moment. Bass had been really the early real front runner in the race. It seemed like she might have a pretty easy path to becoming LA's next mayor. She's a congresswoman with a really long history in the city, came up as a community organizer, founded Community Coalition South LA, um, was a physician's assistant, like very, very long history, particularly in South LA. And Caruso's entrance into the race has really upended what the race had looked like before he got in when it was all longtime public officials. He has put an amount of money into the race that really has no precedent in L.A. politics. He still hasn't gotten close to Bloomberg and New York City numbers, but um, we are still six weeks out from the primary and have many months to the November general. And he's already put $16 million into his campaign. His slogan is Caruso can clean up L.A. And his big themes, he's really been hitting on crime homelessness, and city hall corruption. And Bass's campaign is a bit more nuanced. And I think in a lot of ways, that's hurt her ability to really get kind of instant traction because she's giving more nuanced messages. She's not just pounding the same three things all the time. 
Erica, I was going to add one thing. I mean, I think with Caruso, I mean, we, we saw his poll numbers shoot up after the debate that he did here, actually at USC, that I co-moderated. And I think part of that was like, the bar in some ways was so low for him. He's like a known, I mean, unknown quantity. I mean, we know like the Grove, we know USC, we know he was on the police commission, but, you know, it was unclear until that night whether he could actually hold his own on a stage and he got attacked from all sides you know and he was able to to parry and to make his points and i think that that's part i mean other than the fact that he's spending so much money but i do think the fact that he was able to back it up and actually able to be able to hold his own as a political candidate i think is also leading to that uptick absolutely and the other thing i'd say actually that i thought was really interesting about that debate because i feel like it's a bit of a metaphor for both of their candidacies, is Caruso was constantly attacked. And by debate rules, he was allowed 30 seconds to rebut every time he was attacked. And he claimed that rebuttal on every single attack, on things that maybe you would have otherwise let go. He strategically chose to fight back on each one, which meant that he seemingly talked more than anyone else during the debate. And other people, he would, you know, then attack someone else in one of his attacks, and then it would go to them. And you ended up with a lot of the men on stage attacking each other. And Bass didn't really engage in any of those attacks. She really has framed herself as a coalition builder. And because of that, I do think we heard from her the least during that debate. Absolutely. And she, you know, she was funny because she was actually at the center of the stage. And so the 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 dynamic was is all these men fighting over top of her. And she's like shorter than all of them for the most part. And so it was really interesting to see. And half the time she'd just be you know, I, a lot of times she wasn't on camera, but she was just shaking her head or she'd kind of smile and just go and roll her eyes. And, and it, it would always be something a few times she did jump back in. And it was always when things clearly had gotten to the point where it was so ridiculous that she felt like like I think it took her like five times for Crusoe to insult people who have served an elected office for her to be like, all right. You know, why are you attacking us for for public service, basically? But it took a while. And she strategically didn't engage Caruso. So he had more time. She was very aware of that. I think the other men on stage are just like, we're going after him. And that's what we're doing. <laughs> no, they were desperate because like, sorry, Mike Fuhrer, Joe Buscaino, y'all ain't doing anything at all. Aline, what do you think? So in terms of the sheriff's race, we have Sheriff Inueva, who's raising the most money by far of all the candidates. He has the most name recognition at this point. He's constantly in the news. So there's not really a candidate who's emerging really as an obvious front runner that could force him into a runoff. It's a crowded field though. There's like eight people challenging him. So that might just split up the vote enough to force a runoff, but it's just really hard to predict who is going to be that person. If Villanueva gets more than 50% is uh, like he wins. Uh, he wins Ritz. outright. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Given that there's so many candidates and he does have such name recognition for better or for worse, what do you think is going to happen? I really don't know, but... Um... Reporters aren't allowed to prognosticate, <laughs> okay. sorry. Um, let, let me ask it this way. It, how do you think Villanueva, you know, Villanueva has been, his administration has been a very controversial one. You have done a lot of great stories. For instance, there was a story about, and also the podcast, about how the sheriff's department pulls over Latinos, bicyclists at a far higher rate than any other uh, folks. But how do you think he is campaigning right now uh, in terms of trying to win? He is doing a lot of events. He's having town halls in cities that he does not patrol. And so like a few days ago, he was in Santa Monica. He was in Burbank recently. These are not these are cities where people are going to be voting for the sheriff, but they're not patrolled by the sheriff's department. So he's really trying to reach out 
to these different segments. Why, why do you think he's doing that? Of course, probably the most notorious example of that was when Sheriff Villanueva went to Venice in, was it May, no, June, at homeless encampments and wearing a cowboy hat. Right. Why, right. Why, what's his strategy with that? So he has been at war with the other elected leaders of the city and the county and saying that their so-called woke policies are creating this homeless crisis and that he is the person that can clean it up. So he went into Venice, which is patrolled by LAPD, and says that only I can clean this up with the sheriff's department because I'm in an elected position and I have the authority to do this, whereas the LAPD reports to the city council and the mayor, and they're not allowing the LAPD to, to clean up this problem. He's trying to do the same thing in Hollywood recently. Um, he said that he's going to go into Hollywood just the way that he went into Venice. And then actually within the last couple of weeks, he also gave the Metro board an ultimatum. Um, so there's the whole network of LA County's buses and trains are patrolled by, you know, three different agencies, the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, and Long Beach PD. And so he came in and told the Metro board, listen, if you guys don't give me the entire contract, I'm going to pull out my 300 deputies from patrolling our segment of the trains and buses. And so now come June or July, the Metro board is scrambling like, okay, what do we do? How are we going to be able to patrol these areas if the sheriff department pulls out their resources? Um, So I'll throw it to Julia really quickly. You've covered L.A. politics for a while now. What what kind of character? How does Villanueva compare in the pantheon of L.A. characters? I think he's a pretty colorful one. I mean, if you go, you know, far back in L.A. politics, there's a lot of colorful characters. But I think the level to which he has publicly kind of warred with other elected officials, I think, is uncommon in more recent L.A. politics. Although I think L.A. politics among elected officials has gotten quite a bit nastier than it had been, at least for the last decade or so. Like there's several members of city council who pretty openly seem to really dislike each other. And I don't know if that has to do with how much kind of uglier the broader discourse has gotten, but I'm interested in in whether those things are correlated. Erica, you have a thought. And that was interesting. I was just thinking about that, the ugliness. I'm thinking right now, you know, Markley Thomas has been suspended from his seat mm-hmm. and Herb Wesson is now in his seat. They don't agree on that. <laughs> so even, you know, <laughs> even within the same community and people arguing, there, there's that conflict to it. But, you know, it's interesting that I do think that has to do with the broader discourse going on in society. Because I do think even if you look at public comment at a lot of the meetings, it's gotten more rougher and coarser, I think, than it has in the past. So I just think that if for any number of reasons, I do think that people feel this this election season coming up is important. And, you know, it's probably bolstered by the, the strong opinions on all sides, I think, that people have. Mm-hmm. On city council public comment, I will say there have always been uh, okay. very, very outlandish people who sometimes bring costumes, a lot of cursing. <laughs> that is not new. But I do think And I'm all for accessibility, but I do think the accessibility of being able to call in versus actually having to go to City Hall perhaps has broadened who's willing to make the effort to participate. That's interesting. I can totally see that. (laughs) Democracy. I love it. Uh, Erica, with uh, George Gascon, what's interesting to me about Gascon is that 
this is someone who won. You know, in, just in 2020, he was able to win against incumbent Jackie Lacey. He won with a good percentage of the vote, but almost immediately there was people who wanted to recall him. And a lot of it came from his own prosecutors who just were against it. Where do you think that antagonism against Gascon came from? I mean, I think some of it has to do with the fact that if we take our minds back to 2020. I mean, we're coming out of George Floyd. We're coming, we're in the pandemic. People are very much, the general public cares a lot about criminal justice reform and Black Lives Matter and you name it. And, you know, Gascon is in this wave. He's riding this like, you know, demand for criminal justice reform, for more mental health workers on the street, even less people being locked up and for longer because of the pandemic. We have, you know, more people being released from jail and prison. We have just more of an emphasis on other ways of dealing with crime. But we all know that that didn't last very long. I mean, we see where we are now. Um, and so I think that some of that vitriol we see directed towards Gascon has to do with the fact that we're, as the general public, we're just not as adamant about criminal justice reform as we were two years ago. So it's kind of a chicken and egg kind of thing. But I do think that it it's feeding on each other. It's And I do think that also just seeing the uptick in homicides and upticks in other, in other crimes, very visible crimes, such as some of the follow-home robberies that we've been discussing lately and what happened during the holiday season last year. So I think there's been a number of things that have come together. And I think, but I do think it's presented this political opportunity for people who have hated, frankly, the criminal justice reform movement and have wanted to go back for whatever reason to more of a law and order standpoint. This was like this perfect storm of opportunity for them. And there was a recall attempt against Gascon last year that just petered out. But this one really seems to have a lot of legs to it. Yeah, because I mean, last year it was that recall collection, if I'm remembering correctly, was before all the smash and grab robberies. It was before we were still stuck in the house for the most part. You know, we weren't out and about. We have to talk about, too, how homelessness kind of intersects with this public safety argument. You know, when we were all stuck in the house, we weren't seeing, you know, the encampments that have built up over the last couple of years for various different reasons. Public safety and safety and crime, these things have all become more intertwined as we've emerged from the pandemic bubble and we've been more out and about and other crimes have had upticks. So I think it's just it's just all about timing. And one of the main electeds who has been going after Gascon has been Villanueva. Yeah, Gascon is one of Villanueva's favorite punching bags. He blames a lot of the increases on crime on Gascon, which the uptick in violent crime is something that we've seen across the country. It's not unique to L.A. And in fact, when you looked at one of my colleagues wrote a story about the filing rates of violent crimes, and um, it turns out Gascon has filed the same percentage of felony violent cases as Jackie Lacey. He's filed a lot less um, misdemeanors, but in terms of violent cases, it's very similar. But one thing that is different is that the LAPD and the Sheriff's Department have solved less cases. So their clearance rates have for homicides have dramatically dropped in the last couple of years. What, what is the reason for it, according to Villanueva? According to Villanueva, he's lost a lot of his detectives due to people retiring. And then there's a hiring freeze from the Board of Supervisors that he's saying he can't fill those positions. So he's saying he lost like a quarter of his detectives. A lot of them, he says, were homicide detectives. For him, it always comes back to the budget and he's being defunded and the Board of Supervisors is not adequately giving him enough money to to do these things. But his budget has pretty much stayed the same. There isn't really like a whole lot of defunding going on. So we all know that the big issues 
not just in LA, but really Southern California are crime, homelessness, also housing affordability. But what's one issue in your, the respective races or just in any of the races that you think is being underplayed by, you know, by us at the LA Times or in just the media in general that you think is going to be sort of the wild card maybe? For all of those reasons you just mentioned, those three top reasons, I think there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, public anger at things. I mean, I guess in, in addressing all three of those issues, you are in theory addressing the anger. But I think in, in everybody's quest to talk to voters, I think that all of the candidates and all of the races are really underestimating how upset people are for various different reasons about the quality of life in L.A. And I don't hear any candidate really like talking to people in that way. I guess, you know, Crusoe, I, I imagine, believes he is by talking about the city needs to be cleaned up. Yeah, Julia did that article about when Caruso says no one feels safe in Los Angeles anymore. Nowhere. You actually went to talk to people. Yeah. So we did that article after the debate that Erica moderated. Caruso, during that debate, had really made a point of there were quite a few pretty hyperbolic statements saying that every single person in every corner of the city feels unsafe walking out their door and also saying that crime in Los Angeles is worse than it's ever been, which is just not not at all true, you know, is much worse in, in the 90s. The rates don't compare. And we really wanted to get a sense of how people, because a lot of people do feel unsafe. You know, another kind of, in during that same part of the debate, each candidate was asked on a scale of one to 10, how safe they felt. And Karen Bass said 10 out of 10. And quite a few people I've talked to like out and about have mentioned that as something that turned them off because they felt like it was a bit out of touch to say, 10 out of 10. She did, by the way, acknowledge that a lot of people in the city do feel unsafe. But it's it's kind of an interesting thing of like where some people thought it was a bit Pollyanna-ish. So yeah, we four reporters uh, fanned out to all different corners of the city to just interview dozens of people about whether or not they feel safe in LA. And we got a much more nuanced picture. Some people feel really unsafe and really scared. One woman I talked to who has a works at her family flower shop in Van Nuys. You know, crime has been something that has shaped their worldview. They had to get extra security for Valentine's Day because they were so worried about being robbed following the smashing grabs. And I think she told me it was something like $1,500 that was a really big amount for their store. Other people we talked to, you know, really weren't that worried at all. They feel like it hasn't shaped their lives at all. Um, it really kind of depends where you are in the city and also on the person. But I don't think it's fair to say that everyone in the city feels unsafe. Yeah. No, for sure. Absolutely. I do think, though, that there is this level of anger that politicians, especially on the Democratic Party, are really surprised at. And I do think, Aline, that the one politician, at least on the bigger level, that does get this is Sheriff Villanueva. And not only is he channeling it, he's gleefully doing it. Yeah, we had uh, he filmed a video where he went on the train and talked to people in regular clothes, not in his sheriff uniform and and really like seized on what he saw that day, like people using the elevators as a what he called a mobile porta potty or something. Mm. And so he's really been leaning into that. He really thinks that's going to be a winning strategy. Seems like it. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he did that in Venice. You know, that was the whole thing about him going out to that homeless encampment in Venice. And that was, you know, around the time when Mike Bonin was getting a lot of grief for the council member, the council member there. Yeah. For 
and, and I, you know, I remember a specific councilman went, meeting when, when Councilman Bond was pushing back on something. It was very miffed. And he was saying about how, you know, he's unsure whether Angelinos want to solve homelessness or they want to solve homeless encampments. And and to me, that was so clear because he didn't get the anger that, that people were just very frustrated about having what's on their streets, basically. And like, right or wrong, I'm not saying the way the public feels is good or bad. I'm just saying that it was a it was a calculation that I think Bonin didn't get. And I think that a lot of members of the city council didn't get either as far as what people actually want. And I do think you're right. I mean, I think that's why the sheriff got such, you know, people in Venice were happy he was out there, even if he didn't really do a whole lot. But like, I think that he people were happy because they felt like he was doing something. Going back to your wildcard question and Erica's anger answer, to me, the anger is also not just the wild card issue, but it's the wild card itself of how people are going to act because of that anger. Like, I feel like we don't totally know how it's going to play out. We all know it's going to be this major factor because there's anger on all sides. Like, people on the far left are really, really angry too. And it's just, I don't know, I, I think it'll be really interesting over the next couple of months. See, I'll see like how that, where and how that boils over. More after the break. I'm going to ask one more question for our panelists. And this is just more, you know, the journalist in me. How, given that there's a primary coming and given there's always just so, you know, there's so many candidates running and there's so many issues running, how do you choose the stories that you want to cover politically wise? I mean, to me, it's more like, I think we all can write about the politics of stuff. And if you like politics, it's like a soap opera, right? Because it, it, it really is a soap opera. But I do think what's mostly interesting is how those politics and how that public policy really affects people, right? I mean, some people in public office might be in it just for the rush of saying, I won or forgetting this past or whatever. But I do think most, I would like to think a lot of the people that are in office, at least at some point in their life when they ran for office, were like, yeah, I want to do this to actually do some good. So I think it's up to incumbent upon us to show the good, the bad, the ugly, about how public policy affects real people, but also kind of reflect back what we see in the public to those elected officials if they don't get it or they don't see it. And I think that that's kind of how I try to pick my columns or topics that I write about. Julia? Yeah, that's a great question and certainly something that I think we're always trying to figure out and also get a fair amount of flack for what we do choose to cover. On my beat, which is city, I'd say... Half of my time is just putting out fires. So breaking news stuff, you know, this is happening. We're jumping on this. We call it a daily story if it's a story that you found out about that day and you're writing that day to go in the paper the next day. And I usually end up with like two, sometimes three dailies a week on my beat. So beyond that, it can be harder to kind of be strategic about what the long-term stuff is. But we we try and plan and kind of think about, A, what are we hearing from people? Like, you know, we're out talking to voters. We're also talking to all these candidates. What are kind of the common themes, the common threads? And then really also making sure that, you know, when this election comes, what will people want to have known about? Where can we do our service as the paper of record in the city and informing people? Aline. I have gotten a fair amount of criticism for what the sheriff likes to say are only negative stories about him. But I like to choose my stories, do accountability stories. And because there's so much controversy within the sheriff's department, I'm always hearing a lot of things that 
may shed negative light on the department, but you got to pursue those stories because they're important and people care about them. If someone's committing misconduct, people need to know, voters need to know. So accountability stories and stories that can kind of get some impact are kind of how I approach the beat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming to the Festival Books. Please do subscribe to The Times, the podcast, and The Times, the publication. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Big thanks to our LA Times Festival of Books partners for putting on such a great event. And hey, we actually have another live event about politics coming up later this month. I'm going to be co-moderating a debate between some of the top mayoral candidates with my other Audio Familia over at KCRW. And I want to know what you want to know about homelessness. So call 619-800-0717 and leave a voicemail with your questions for the mayoral candidates about homelessness. I just might ask it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Rosalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our editorial assistants are Madeline Amaro and Carlos Deloera. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Morgan. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. Kinsey Moreland was a hef on this episode. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you a podcast. I'm Gustavo Ariado. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias.